Every week, we gather to receive fresh gifts from our Lord Jesus. Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. While we're in this life, we deal with all kinds of troubles, don't we? Anxieties, injustice, oppression, hopelessness, you name it. But when we gather each week, we can have our faith refreshed with the Lord's gifts of grace and peace. We're in a series called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. Here's a message entitled, Grace and Peace to You, Part 1. This is the question we've been looking at. What are we to do when we come together? What are we to do? What is our church service supposed to look like? What can we legitimately regard as a true biblical liturgy or order of service? Now, these questions are of the utmost importance to remind you of what we looked at. They are of utmost importance because forms form us. If you lay concrete and you make a form and you pour the concrete into it, that concrete, once it hardens, will take the shape of the form that you put it in. Your life as a Christian over a lifetime will take the shape or form of the type of church service that you attend over a lifetime. Because forms form. Everything you do will form you in a church service. So these questions are of utmost importance. We need to understand that what we do or what we don't do in corporate worship really matters because liturgies form people in deep and profound ways, sometimes when they don't even realize it. See, we have to remember that liturgy, generally speaking, just in a general way of defining it, liturgy is a set of rituals done by an individual or a group of people repeatedly. That's all a liturgy is. It's, it is a set of rituals that you do over a period of time repeatedly. And it is the continual repetition of these rituals that powerfully shape and form our lives. Um, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Um, I just read recently in a very interesting article in the Boston Globe and it really illustrates this very point of how liturgy shape and form our lives very powerfully. The article was entitled, The Power of Rituals. And so I want to share with you this morning as we, as we start to look at this, just a few portions of the article with you. Uh, Wade Boggs, okay? Um, here's how it starts. Wade Boggs, the Hall of Fame third baseman for the Boston Red Sox, was famous for his pregame rituals. You probably had some too. Before each outing, so before he would go out and play every game, it said before each outing, he ate chicken. He took batting practice at 5.17 p.m. He did wind sprints at 7.17 p.m., he fielded 150 ground balls, and then he wrote the Hebrew word for life in the dirt before going up to bat. That was his baseball liturgy before every single game. And then the article said, did these, it says superstitions, but it, it's routine rituals. Did these routine rituals do any good for Wade Boggs? 
Some new research suggests that they might have, and that anyone from Olympic athletes to office workers can benefit from the same kind of routines. Or same kinds, not Wade Boggs' routine, but you know what I'm talking about. So the article goes on to reveal how researchers at the Harvard Business School have been able to demonstrate the power that rituals or that liturgies have to shape and form a person's life. So the article asks this question, quote, so how does one go about the testing of the power of routine rituals? Obviously, part of the answer includes the 1970s rock band Journey sodium chloride, and crumpled up pieces of paper. Very interesting. The research conducted by Harvard Business School professor Allison Wood Brooks and several collaborators grew out of research Brooks had been doing on anxiety. Most people feel anxious several times a day. But there are a few reliable ways of calming down. Feeling anxiety well before facing a challenge can motivate preparation, but during a task, it can eat up mental resources. The researchers then turn to the effectiveness of a made-up ritual, a made-up liturgy. Eighty-five college students were told that they had to sing journeys Don't Stop Believing" in front of an experimenter and with a bonus for accuracy as measured by the karaoke machine. Half of the college students were asked to do the following ritual. Here was their ritual. Draw a picture of how you're feeling right now Sprinkle salt on your drawing, count up to five out loud, crinkle up your paper, and throw your paper in the trash. So that was their liturgy. Those college students who performed the ritual were less anxious than the others. And as a result, they sang better. In a companion experiment, being told they would have to sing, raise students' heart rates, raise mine, but then performing the ritual lowered their heart rate. So what the researchers discovered in their studies is that rituals, liturgies work. That amazing The article interviewed a business professor at the University of Minnesota who has studied rituals but was not involved in this study at Harvard. But the professor in the interview about the study said, quote, the surprising part is how effective rituals are for improving performance. I like that a lot. It's surprising and fresh, end quote. And then the article in the Boston Globe concludes like this. Boggs and other athletes frequently appear on lists of silly sports superstitions. But this research shows that their actions are not so silly. Lots of people use rituals naturally. 
the rituals that an outsider might scoff at, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to judge because they can actually be helpful. Now, that was an amazing article that I came across in the Boston Globe as we go through this series, perfectly illustrating the point I'm trying to get across to you. Wade Boggs' baseball liturgy, if it can improve his performance in a baseball game, how much more can the liturgy of the church, week in and week out, shape and form your life of discipleship and quote your daily performance as a Christian? If the ritual or liturgical practice of drawing a picture of how you're feeling before you sing Journey Song, Don't Stop Believing, in front of a, an, a professor, if drawing a picture of how you feel, sprinkling salt on that picture, counting to five out loud, crinkling up your paper, throwing that paper in the trash, if that can lessen your anxiety, make you sing like Journey, or perhaps just better, but maybe not like Journey, but make you sing better, how much more powerful and important is the historical liturgy of the church for your life. These weekly routines and rituals, liturgies that we engage in in this church week after week matter because they are powerfully shaping and forming you into the likeness of Christ. Remember, at the beginning of this series, I said... The question is not, are people being formed when they come to this church? That's not the question. The question is, how are people being formed when they come to this church? Because we said that the purpose of the liturgy and corporate worship is to shape and form us into the likeness of Christ. Liturgy... The, the, the set of rituals, the lit, liturgical actions that you perform every week in corporate worship is to teach you how to put on Christ and live the Christian life every day. The elements then that make up our corporate worship matter a great deal because these forms form us. These are not neutral things that you do. When you say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forevermore, that is not just fancy liturgical throwaway words for you to go, oh, here we do it again. Blessed be the Lord. That's not the purpose. You can be as rote and mechanical and dead in what they call free charismatic worship as you can be in liturgical guided worship because every church has a liturgy. The question is, how is that forming you? What is it doing? It's not so much what you do, it's what the liturgy, it's what it's designed to do to you week in and week out in the church. So the elements that we do greatly matter. 
So what is it that we do when we come together? What are these necessary elements? Well, you can condense them into three. Prayer, the word, and sacraments. We can have a whole worship service if there's just prayer, word, and sacraments. We don't have to have anything else. We add other things because it's beautiful and we love music, right? You don't have to have instruments. You don't have to have music to have the true worship of God. But you do have to have prayer. You do have to have the ministry of the word. You do have to have the sacraments. But what are, the, what are these elements that we do? Well, we saw last week that we begin with the invocation, which is prayer. That's prayer. You're learning to pray. Worship, the worship service begins at the prayer of invocation. The liturgy teaches us at the very beginning that our lives are to be lived in daily constant invocation. The prayer of invocation is the offspring of genuine saving faith. The gospel, which gives us faith and strengthens and nurtures our faith, trains our hearts to call upon the name of the Lord. We are God's gathered guests. And as his gathered guests, we gather together each week on the Lord's day to call upon the name of the Lord. And in doing so, we publicly declare our absolute total 100 dependence upon the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray and confess Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And when we pray and confess that psalm, we publicly declare that all our help comes from the Lord alone. He has all sufficiency in him, and we have none. We declare that the gift giver alone, who made heaven and earth, can save us and protect us. So like the psalm in Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2, we confess by faith. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. By doing this as an invocation that we are embracing and preserving the true worship of God in the church. Secondly, we said that by the prayer of invocation, we glorify God. Worship and the glorification of God does not begin when you sing songs in the church. So many people think everything in the church is kind of a warm-up to you. The band just really gets going in the music. And then when it really gets going and the whole church is into it, man, we're worshiping. We're having worship. We're, we're glorifying God. Worship begins at the prayer of invocation, glorifying God corporately because it is attributing our entire salvation to the grace of God alone. This is why we pray, Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. When is the day of trouble? Every single second of my life. <laughs> I'm always needy, dependent to be delivered. And when I'm calling out to the Lord as I'm driving to work tomorrow morning, Lord, help me, save me, Lord God, according to your steadfast love, you are glorifying God in that car right then. When you're at work and your boss has come down on you or your coworkers are giving you a hard time and you put your head down at your desk and you're at your wits end because you are so stressed out, 
Help me, Lord God. Save me according to your steadfast love. I can't do this anymore. You are glorifying God. This is why we pray Psalm 109, 26 in the invocation. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. The invocation powerfully reminds us that we are helpless against our enemies. Who are our enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And only God can deliver me from those three enemies. I am utterly helpless to effect salvation in my life. And when we begin the service with invocation, we are glorifying God, his steadfast love. And his steadfast love is perfectly revealed in his greatest gift, his son, Jesus Christ. There is, Peter says to the Sanhedrin, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we, by which we must be saved. God saves us even though we don't deserve it. It's his steadfast love. His salvation, his service to us, it's all of grace. His steadfast love, his faithfulness, his goodness, his mercy. It is to him alone, to all glory, to him alone. He continually rescues us as we cry out to him because of his steadfast love. The prophet Jeremiah, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I can't tell you how many times when I wake up, I have gone to that passage and quoted it and said, Lord, help me today. And then lastly, we saw that the prayer of invocation comforts and assures fearful and weak believers. Psalm 91, verse 15. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Jesus teaches us to pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us, Father, deliver us from evil. I can't tell you how much I pray that every week. I pray it when I wake up. I pray it every night before I go to bed. And I pray it all day long throughout the whole day. Deliver me from this evil. Deliver me from evil. Deliver me from evil. Oh, Lord, deliver me from evil. That's how I pray. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. Father, deliver us from evil. And the invocation reminds us in corporate worship to pray this petition for assurance as we call out for help. That our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You hear my cry and you respond and you deliver me from my enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You come because you're my Father. I'm your son and I need deliverance and only you can give it. And it assures my weak heart. What does it look like for God to come? And how does he come? This past week in a small group, John was with us. He says, I come to church and I wonder where God is and how he's going to meet me and how I'm going to meet him. I've always wondered that. God's response in the liturgy answers John's prayer. It's called the salutation. It's a fancy liturgical word, invocation, salutation. 
You know what salutation is? It's a greeting. It's God's greeting to his people. Immediately after prayer of invocation, the minister, acting as the Lord's divinely appointed ambassador, speaking on behalf of the king from his court, raises his hands and blesses the people and declares God's good will toward them in the liturgy. And he announces God's promised rescue. Hear God's welcome greeting to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Having invoked the name of the one who has delivered us from our Egypt, from our slavery to sin, our bondage to iniquity, we are then met with God's gracious response. This salutation, his greeting, is God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's response to his gathered guests' invocation, cry for help, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a greeting by a king. What a greeting. Now notice how this liturgy constitutes a dialogue between the Lord and his people. We said last week that all corporate worship is based on this covenantal pattern. This covenant that God has made, we call upon him, we pull the fire alarm of invocation, Lord, help me, save me, deliver me, come. And he comes when we pull the fire alarm. It's this dialogue and worship. It's called the dialogical worship. It's dialogical. You're having a dialogue. You are talking to God. You are praying. You are learning to pray through the liturgy, and he responds to you. And it is the minister acting in his office, speaking on behalf of God as God's divinely sent ambassador on behalf of God. He's speaking to the congregation and the congregation's responding to God. It is a dialogue. And so the good news is that when we speak, when we invoke the name of our God, the name of the Lord, he listens and he responds and he will not violate his covenant promise, his steadfast love to his people. Listen to the psalmist as he's reflecting on God's promise to David in the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because the psalmist is wondering, where is God? I've been calling on God. Where is God? And as he reflects on God's covenant promise to David, listen, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. What comfort. Because of his steadfast love, his covenant promise, when we invoke the Lord, he descends in the power of the Holy Spirit. He takes up his authority, his throne among us to deliver us from all our enemies, from the enemies of the, of the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. He comes. 
We call on the Lord to be present among us by his spirit every single week. And when we do that, we listen as Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9, is fulfilled in our presence. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So God's greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are unexpected words of assurance and comfort. Now why do I say unexpected? Why are these unexpected words? Because in our fallen, depraved state, we do not expect the living God to greet us with grace and peace. That's not what we expect. We expect to get exactly what we have merited. Why do we expect to get what we deserve? Why do we not expect to get grace and peace? Why, where does this come from? Because we're wired that way. That's how we are created. You can't escape it. We do not expect for our sin and rebellion to be greeted with forgiveness and restoration. Instead, like Adam, we expect to get what we deserve. Now, that's heavy, but thankfully, there's good news. The Lord meets willful disobedience with grace. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called Grace and Peace to You, Part 1. More from the Gift Giver series coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.